just like to welcome everyone who's joining us for the live stream today. It's only one part of our service here with, at Chelsea Community Church with City Temple. If you want to be part of the whole thing via Zoom, drop us an email, or you can come and see us in person at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings here at Chelsea Community Church. If you have your Bible with you, let's turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And before we read, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is trustworthy and true. And I pray, Father God, that you would speak to us today through your word in the power of your Holy Spirit. And let your Holy Spirit rest on me that I can bring your word to your people today boldly and faithfully through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We pick up with verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting his eyes up then, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test Philip, for Jesus himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each one of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter brother, said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, uh, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now let's skip down to verse 25. When the people found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set a seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to them, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus said, then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus? the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Now, one of the more touching moments in the time following the death of the queen last autumn was uh, some of the televised uh, talks from uh, King Charles. And it was very interesting how in his talks, he referred to the queen as mother because that's what she was to him. But for the rest of us, she was the queen. Although it also was interesting how many people were interviewed on the streets who said, well, the queen was like my grandmother. 
Uh, and so I, I can almost imagine, you know, if one of those people, if they went up to the queen, you know, would they have said, oh, granny, good to see you? No, they wouldn't have. You know, they would have been like I would have been, quite in awe uh, of that moment. And the same kind of thing, the same kind of question comes around who Jesus is. Who Jesus is for you. I mean, a lot of people think of Jesus, hey, he's, he's my buddy, you know, he's my best friend. We're going to go out and have a pizza and a beer together or something like that. Some people think of Jesus as this distant king. Some people think of Jesus as a white western guy with kind of gray hair and wearing sandals and maybe a beard or something like that. Uh, you know, people have a lot of ideas about Jesus. People have a lot of thoughts about Jesus, but are they all correct? Does it make a difference? Couldn't we just make Jesus up in our own image? You know, we can do that sometimes with other historical figures. We can do that like we've done with the recent historical figure of the queen, making her to be like uh, uh, one of our relatives. But does that represent the truth of who Jesus is. Now we know that Jesus is a historical figure. We believe he's fully God and fully human, but we believe probably above all that it matters what you believe about Jesus, that actually it matters eternally as well as in this life who Jesus is, how you understand Jesus. And yet, more and more and more, our, our cultures are beginning to alter the idea of Jesus to make him something different than he actually was. Who's right? You know, if I say Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and I'm talking with my Muslim friend, and he says, oh, no, he's not. You know, he was a prophet. Maybe we're both right. Was he maybe a guru in Hinduism? Was he kind of a form of Buddha? Does it really make a difference? And obviously we would say, yes, it does. But one of the great challenges is that frankly, we can say that and we can believe that, but so often Christians do not know who Jesus is. They do not have an understanding about the true Jesus Christ. Now, Christianity Today recently had a, did a report on a survey done among American evangelicals. Now, to be an evangelical, you have to believe that the Bible is the highest authority. You have to believe that we need to trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We need to believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And we need to believe that trusting in Jesus alone bring salvation. So these are people who would self-identify in this way that they believe all these things. Of these people, 56% in this survey, 56% said that Jesus is not the only way to God. 73% said that Jesus was created by God. 43% of these evangelicals 
quote unquote, said that Jesus is not God. And those are not the only heresies that are circulating around. I've heard others. Uh, some people have said that Jesus, he was a good teacher. He was a good teacher. Well, how many good teachers have you ever heard that said, yeah, eat my flesh, you know? That's kind of a crazy teacher. One of the big ones now is that Jesus was not sinless, that Jesus sinned just like the rest of us did. Uh, there's a number of people who, who believe Jesus did not rise bodily from the dead. I remember back in the 1990s, I was in a conference uh, in a denomination, an American denomination, uh, trying to discern the future of that denomination. And I was sitting talking to a guy who was a, a pastor and uh, four elders, and we were talking about what the church really needed, what the denomination needed uh, to get renewed and to go forward. And it seemed like me and this other guy, we were on a roll and the other elders were watching us. And then this other guy finally said, you know what really, what we really need to do is just stop believing in, in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I mean, everybody knows, you know, that, that it's the bodily resurrection. It's not really important. You know, it's a metaphor. And the metaphor is what's important. And at first I thought he was joking. You know, so I'm like, yeah, right. And it came out that he was serious. And the other elders are just kind of like, you know, aghast. And we went back and forth a little while longer on that one. It's the closest I ever came to saying, brother, you're dying and going to hell. I don't normally do that uh, because that's up to God. But I thought, boy, he was self-condemned. Eventually he left. And thankfully all the other elders looked at me and said, we agree with you. Uh, but it was a scary moment. And this kind of stuff is circulating around. We live in a time where people want to make Jesus in their own image. They think of Jesus as kind of like a... a, a, a uh, a theological figure, but not a historical figure. They think of Jesus as a religious figure, but not a real person that really lived. And so people want to remake Jesus in their own image or according to their own values. I remember recently someone was defending hosting uh, a gay marriage in their back garden in the United States by saying, well, Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor. Those were the two big things. And yeah, Jesus did say those two things, but he also said that not a jot or tittle of the law is going to pass away. Now, Jesus said a lot of things, and we can pick and mix, you know, like the counter and get it, or, or, or like the Christmas candies, you know. Do you notice that they were issuing candies where you could have all the caramel-filled ones or all the orange ones and not have to have the pick and mix? And a lot of people approach Jesus that way. Well, you know, I like the Jesus of love, but uh, at least the way I understand love, I don't like the Jesus that cast out the money changers in the temple. That, that Jesus, he's a little harsh. You know, and if people believe today that it's important for, to allow people to pick their own pronouns and that we should respect that, how much more do we need to allow someone like Jesus to say who he is and respect what he says? Because either Jesus is who he said he is or Jesus is nothing at all. Either Jesus is who he said he is 
or he is not worth following. Either Jesus is who he said he is, or he's a crazy man, or he's a liar, but he's certainly not the Lord, borrowing from Josh McDowell there. So we need to know who he said he was, and we need to choose to believe who he said he was, but it, it, we've got to understand it's not acceptable to say anything we want to about Jesus. It simply isn't as a historical figure. But here's a challenge. I could say a lot about myself. I could tell you that I'm the king of England. And I could walk around wearing a crown. But that, but that doesn't make me the king. I could go up to Buckingham Palace and say, hey, let me in. Don't you recognize? Oh, you should call me your majesty. Don't you recognize who I am? And they'll say, no. And uh, they'll say, let us escort you to a nice little cell somewhere uh, where we can ascertain who you really are. You know, so it's one thing to make a claim about yourself, but it's quite another to be able to back up the claim. And so that's what we're going to be looking at the next several weeks, the next couple of months. You know, because the first question is, who does Jesus say he is? In his own words, not what others say about him. And the second question is, how does he prove it? How do we know that what he said is right? How does he demonstrate it? In John's gospel, and we're going to be focusing on John's gospel over the next couple of months up to Easter time. In John's gospel, John refers to the miracles of Jesus as signs. In other words, they are indicators of who Jesus really is. Yes, they are miracles, but they are miracles that are so special and so unique that they are clear demonstrations of who Jesus is and that what Jesus said is true. And so this series, we're going to be looking at Jesus according to Jesus and see what Jesus did to prove that he is who he said he is. Now, this raises a question for a lot of people. Now, how do we trust that what, what the Bible says about Jesus? Now, how, how do we know what the Bible says is right as opposed to, say, what Muhammad said was right 500 years later? Well, generally, I tend to trust people who were present over people who are reflecting back several hundred years thinking, this is what I imagined him was like. You know, even today, I would, uh, would, would not trust what somebody was writing about Queen Elizabeth I as a reflection, trying to say, well, this is who G Elizabeth really was, and all the people around her didn't really know her, didn't really understand that this is who she really was. And now 500 years later, we kind of know who she was. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. The Bible is eyewitness testimony. The Bible is multiple eyewitnesses. It's the reason there are four Gospels, and each Gospel is supported by multiple eyewitnesses. The, the Bible, these Gospels, are contemporaneous with those who had known Jesus. So if somebody came to me and said, well, listen, you know, Queen Elizabeth was actually a, a witch and part of a coven, I'd say, you're crazy. 
Because I've been here. I was around her. I didn't know her personally, but I knew enough about her to know that she's not a witch. Feel like you're from a Monty Python sketch or something. So they're contemporaneous with Jesus, and the evidence is consistent. In other words, over all the versions of the Gospels and of the New Testament that have been circulated in the first couple hundred years after they were written, they're all mostly the same. And historically, that confirms authenticity. It's one of the tests there. So we can trust what we're reading here. And in fact, it's the only contemporaneous source that we have. So all those other gospels that were written one, 200 years later, it made up, made up stories. These are the ones that we can trust. These are the ones that are contemporaneous. And if you can't trust them, you can't trust anything. So at some point in time, you've got to make a decision and make a choice of faith. Now, as we go through John, we need to understand how John's gospel differs from Matthew, Mark, and Luke because it's a different kind of thing. John is writing toward the end of his life. John is writing about things that a lot of people hadn't shared for various reasons. Uh, in a sense, John is not writing a sequential history. He's not setting out like Luke did. Luke set out and said, hey, I'm, I'm trying to go from A to B to C to D and follow historically what happened and tell the story as economically as possible, but to be historically accurate. John said, hey, basically he said, okay, these are my, these, this is what I saw. This is what I experienced. These are like my memoirs, being with Jesus. And I want to tell these memoirs, and they're historical, they are true, because I witnessed them, and others witnessed them, but I'm telling them so that you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is the source of salvation, so that you will believe everything he said about himself. And so I'm going to tell you some stories, I'm going to tell you what he said, and I'm going to tell you what he did, because I was close to Jesus, I was there, I lived this, and I'm relaying what I experienced and what I lived. And you can trust it because there are other people around me who know the stories as well. So that's our basis. So every week in this series, we're going to look at what Jesus said about himself, what Jesus did to prove it, and how we must respond. What Jesus did, what he said about himself, and how we need to respond to it. And so today, obviously, we're focusing on Jesus' phrase, I am the bread of life. But today we're going to start out by talking about what he did. What was the sign? What was the indicator? What was the evidence? Obviously, it's the feeding of the 5,000. Here he is. He's talking. There's 5,000 men plus women and children gathering around. He, he had to have a big voice. So he's preaching. He's teaching. And then he kind of goes over, I think it was Philip there, wasn't it? He kind of nudges him and says, hey, Philip, you know, uh, maybe we gotta, should feed these people. And Philip's going, oy vey, Jesus, how you could say that? I mean, we'd have to work a year just to give at, get, get the appetizers, get the, get the starters for food. And Jesus, he knows what he's, he's messing with them, right? 
And then Andrew comes along. Andrew's really helpful and says, well, hey, we got this kid here. He's willing to share his lunch. He's got five loaves and a couple fish. <laughs> but I don't know what in the world that's going to do. And Jesus said, okay, get everybody to sit down. And they sat down. And you know what happened next? They distributed it. And they all ate their fill. They all ate their fill, not just like starters. It was like the whole meal. They couldn't handle anymore. And not only did they all eat their fill, but they collected 12 basketfuls of leftovers for breakfast. You know, that, that, that could be pretty good, you know, the leftovers for breakfast. It was an amazing thing. And it's a clear demonstration of the power of Jesus Christ. Nobody had done this before. Not even Moses, you know, did this kind of a, a miracle. You know, God just said, this is what I'm going to do, and then God did it. But here is Jesus doing this miracle as a demonstration of his supernatural care and provision for those who seek after him. And this miracle just shows how Jesus can take the little we have and multiply it greatly, and how Jesus is himself is the one who satisfies us. It pointed to the manna in the wilderness in, in, in ancient Egypt, uh, uh, after the, the exodus. It was reminiscent. Everybody saw that. Everybody should know that, although many people didn't. Uh, there were, like I said, the 12 baskets left over. And at the time, the people recognized this was significant. And they recognized the connection to Moses. Because what did they say there? They said, hey, maybe this is the prophet that has come. Now, in Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy 18, uh, Moses prophesied that there would be a prophet that came after him who would be perfect in his propheticness, in, his pro in, in prophesying in the light. Everything he said would be true. And so they say, maybe this is the prophet that Moses said is going to come. So they recognize this, the, the connection between what had just happened in their lives and what had happened in the wilderness for their, for their ancestors. So it's an incredible demonstration of power. This is what John calls a sign. This is an indicator that someone is there. This person is unusual. This person is special. Something has just happened beyond the other miracle workers that were around, and God did other miracles, beyond the other miracle workers, beyond the other, even the other works Jesus did, here is a key indicator that you're dealing with somebody who's different. So who is that? What did Jesus say? He said, I am the bread of life. This is the claim of the one who fed the 5,000. This is the claim of the one who did that miracle. I am the bread of life. Well, what is he claiming? What is he saying? Let's reflect a moment on the nature of bread. It's interesting. Bread is a universal food. Almost every single culture in the world, I don't know one that doesn't have bread in some way, shape, or form. Now, some don't emphasize bread quite as much as I would like them to because I happen to like bread quite a bit. But uh, every culture around the world has bread. It's universal. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life for the world. 
There's not a lot of breads. There's one bread that's come down from heaven, and Jesus is claiming to be that bread, the one who brings the sustenance, the, the fulfillment that we all need. It's universal. Bread is also a symbol of culture and identity, the different kinds of bread. You know, some cultures want to protect their bread, and some cultures, like the French, you know, they love their baguettes, and don't, you know, don't mess with the, the French person on the baguette, because bread is culturally significant. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the bread of life. I am the one that's culturally significant. I am the one that's bringing all the cultures together, just like bread brings all the cultures together. Jesus is making this claim. Uh, bread is historically important. Hunger, wealth, war, peace have all circulated around bread. Bread is linked to the fruitfulness of the land. When the grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it grows up and bears much fruit and produces fruitfulness. Bread gives us a sense of well-being. For me, it gives me a lot of sense of well-being. Now, some of you don't like it as much as I do, but you can give me yours then. Bread represents our redemption from hunger. It takes away that hunger. Bread even has a connection with worship. And so many cultures, its production, its preparation, its consumption are accompanied by gestures, prayers, formulas, rituals, thanksgiving. And even we do that here. But it's not just us. Many cultures have this. Bread shapes community. Its community is formed as we share bread together, which we're going to do after the service even today. As we divide it and offer it to others, it creates a shared bond between us. Bread is an expression of God's provision. And it's really interesting that if you look, nobody knows how bread got started. I mean, think about it. How do you fit those little grains of wheat? Who figures out that that can be crushed and put in water and heat it up a bit and form this delicious goodness that we have in front of us. It's a mystery. And obviously it came somehow. Nobody knows. And so I'm going to give credit to God because we should all give credit to whom it's due. So when Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, he is saying that he is for everyone who will receive him, no matter their culture, no matter their circumstance. He is saying that he is the one who shapes our new culture and our new identity as his people. He is saying that he is the source of our fruitfulness. He is saying that he is the source for our well-being. He is saying that he, and only he, is the one who redeems us from our spiritual hunger. He is our worship. He is the one who shapes our community. He is God's provision for our lives. Jesus is making these claims in that simple phrase, I am the bread of life. You got to eat this bread. Jesus is saying that he is the one who gives us life and who spiritually sustains us. And as he makes so clear in what he said today, he won't let us go. Once we're linked to him by faith, he doesn't give up on us. He doesn't let us go. He will not lose any of those who have been given to him.
And in the feeding of the 5,000, he proved that he had the right to make this claim. He showed us in that sign evidence that he's not a lunatic, that he could tell us who he is and how we need to respond to him. So what does Jesus require of us? As we said last week when we were talking about truth, truth makes demands. If you know what is true, then you must respond to it. If you don't, you're just foolish. Truth makes demands. If you really know who Jesus is, there are requirements that flow from that. According to Jesus, the first requirement is that we need to come to Jesus and believe in the Jesus whom God the Father has sent. We must have faith in this Jesus, the one who came down from heaven, not the one we create in our own minds and our own imaginations. We have to respond to him by faith and accept who he says he is. If you don't accept who he says he is, you don't accept him. If I call, if I tell you my name is Rod, and every time you talk to me, you call me Bob, it tells me that you don't accept me. It tells me that you don't really believe that I'm a human being worthy of respect and honor because you get my name wrong. Now, if you forget my name and can be corrected, all that's different, but you understand. Same is true with Jesus. We need to accept and believe in Jesus as he is according to Jesus. He said he is the one who comes down from heaven to give life to the world. He is the one who has seen the Father. Nobody else. Jesus said here, nobody else has seen the Father, just me. Just me. He is the one who's seen the Father. He is the one through whom the Father gives eternal life. Coming to him and believing him means we are not free to make Jesus in our own image according to our own preferences. If we do, we can expect nothing from Jesus. None of the promises are none of the benefits of knowing Jesus in our lives. If you're not following the true Jesus, you're not following Jesus. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, hey, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to get in. But only the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. And what is the will of him who sent me? Jesus said in our passage today that he believed in the one in whom God sent. It's so essential. So that's the first thing. We have to come to Jesus and believe in the Jesus whom God has sent. And you know what? That's it, not a given that you'll do that. I always find it very funny looking at the people. What did they say? Okay, Jesus does the, the, the 5,000, feeds them, goes across the lake. The people wake up in the morning. Oy vey, where's Jesus at? Uh, I heard he's going across the lake. Okay, let's go find him. So a bunch of people, they go find him, and they come and say, Jesus, you know, we're looking for you. And he said, well, the only reason you're looking for me is that I, I, I fed, I fed 5,000 of you. You saw the miracle. 
so you need to believe in me. And I said, okay, what sign are you going to give us so that we believe in you? And I'm like, oy vey, man, he just gave you the sign. You ate it yesterday. You know, it's extraordinary to me. But you know, it's not any different today. It's not any different today. So the second thing Jesus said that we have to do is we need to work for the food that endures to eternal life, which Jesus gives freely. That's kind of interesting. You work for the food that you receive freely. What does that mean? It means we have to do the will of God. But doing the will of God starts with believing in Jesus. You cannot do the will of God if you don't believe Jesus, if you're not following him. So you believe in Jesus. And that's how we begin to work for this food that endures to eternal life. And then Jesus said the third way that we need to respond to him is we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood so we'll have life. Now that's intense. Now we have this. Remember, they didn't have the Lord's Supper then. That's before the Lord's Supper happened. So that was a really weird thing to say. That's a strange, strange thing. And in fact, a lot of people said, okay, I could do the first, I could do the second. No way I'm doing the third. I'm out of here. And a lot of people walked away. What is Jesus saying in this? And saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's saying that this is a total commitment on our part. That we totally consume Jesus into our life. I'm not a consumerist most of the time, except on Lord's Supper Sundays. And we eat the bread and we drink the cup. We're taking Jesus, we're consuming him into our life. It's, it's symbolic of the reality of Jesus coming to dwell in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a total commitment. It's where we abide in Jesus and Jesus abides in us, where his life becomes our lives. So this means we've got to make the choice. And the choice is quite simple. Either you respond in faith or you reject Jesus. You're either all in or you're not in. Because that's the demand of the truth. No one comes to the Father unless they're drawn by him. So if you're drawn, you need to come. You need to come. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the only source of life that endures eternally. He demonstrated, he proved it was true what he said in the feeding of the 5,000. And he calls us to respond in faith. And that's the question for us, for each one of us individually and also us corporately. You know, I believe that the church today has become weak because it stopped feeding on the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. It stopped that total commitment that so often has been required in the past. The church today is weak because in many cases it's settled on a substandard Jesus. Jesus can't change who I am, so Jesus just has to live with me who I am. Jesus can't really change my life. And so I just need to live my life however I want to. Jesus doesn't know my reality. And so I need to respond in my reality in my own way. 
We subject Jesus to our opinions instead of our study and our honor. And consequently, the Western church is weak and it's powerless today because of this. Jesus invites us to receive him as the bread of life, the bread that has come down from heaven. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, we take his life into us individually and corporately as we eat the bread and drink the cup. This is a meal for all who respond to Jesus in faith. Father God, you are such a wonderful God. Jesus, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus, we declare, we believe that you are the bread of life. You are the bread that has come down from heaven. You are the source of our eternal nourishment and our eternal satisfaction. And we invite you, O bread of life, to come and fill us up to overflowing so that we're satisfied and even more than satisfied. We love you and we worship you and we praise you. And we pray all of this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.